This is the Australian Butchers Guild podcast, brought to you by Meat and Livestock Australia, the podcast for passionate butchers. G'day everyone and thanks for listening into the Australian Butchers Guild podcast. I'm your host, Doug Piper. We hope you're having a good year and looking forward to the next greatest butcher on your block promotion that the Australian Butchers Guild is running. It's coming up soon, so look out for your kits because they'll be in the mail over the next couple of weeks. Today we're catching up with butcher slash farmer from the northern tablelands of New South Wales, Scotty Fittler. Scott's going to share some info about owning and operating a butcher shop in regional areas, along with plenty of other useful information. And we're also going to hear from our old mate Ripley Atkinson, MLA's market analyst, who is going to share some news around the current beef and lamb supply around Australia. I've known Scott for nearly 20 years now, and back then Scott was one of several shops in the Armadale area but probably the only one who had a really good range of value-added products in his window. He was certainly leading the way for the region and had a big battle on his hands with the growing number of supermarkets that were moving into town. Scott had an ace up his sleeve. He was growing his own cattle and putting some of them through his business, which was an attraction for many of his shoppers. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Doug. Nice to be here. How are you, mate? How's everything going for you? Yeah, it's not too bad. We're just sort of rolling into another year and trying to figure out how this one's going to roll. Hopefully we've got the pandemic mostly behind us and we can sort of try and get some some normality and consistency going. Yeah, yeah, I, I bet tourism would have affected your, um, or the lack of tourism would have probably affected your trade up there. Yeah, I mean, it has a little bit. I think the biggest thing that's affected us is um, we do a little bit of wholesale business, so the opening and closing and, and restrictions placed on those sort of clients has, has had a direct influence on us. The initial shutdown, we're in a centre outside of a Woolworth supermarket and there's 36 stores in the centre, and at one point it was just ourselves and Woolworths that were open. So um, the passing trade that would normally be in there for every other store just virtually vanished. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of lot of shopping centres have sort of suffered the same fate, where you know, lack lack of uh, foot traffic past the past their doors, with uh, a lot of shops being not being able to open. So, mate, when did you first kick off with your butcher shops? When did well? When did you first start in the trade? And um, is, was it a, a family? business that you you were following or i kicked off in uh 1993 um i finished school in 1991 i'd been a you know a washer boy delivery driver in a butcher shop here in town and um i'd spent sort of 12 months when i finished school knocking about and um the guy that i used to work for offered me an apprenticeship so things were pretty tough he originally back in the early 90s um was sort of on the back of really high interest rates there wasn't a lot of you know jobs going and I'd always sort of enjoyed the work. So, yeah, that's how it sort of started for me. It was um, innocuous enough. By probably, actually, by my third year of my apprenticeship, I was actually managing a business for, some, for, um, for my employer and it's sort of just, yeah, it's gone from there. How long was it till you, you bought your, your first meeting place? Uh, initially, I went into business with another guy um, uh, who I used to work for as well, different employers on the, on the way um, in Queensland, up on the sunny coast. So, I had a couple of years up there and then... I uh, decided to go our own, uh, just the wife and I, and we moved back. Uh, we moved back to Armadale. Actually, there's a new centre being built, and um, we got offered the spot with the, for the butcher shop out in front of the Coles supermarket at that stage. So we took that up. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so that you were there for a number of years, weren't you? And and then you've only just recently moved. Yeah. So we we're there for about 17 years, and um, the timing wasn't perfect. We sort of uh, started to relocate, and then the pandemic hit, and sort of things sort of. What was meant to be sort of a three to six month project ended up being about eighteen months. But uh, eventually got in, um, built the shop uh, with myself and and, uh, and my one of my apprentices actually is pretty handy. So 
Um, yeah, it all took a bit of time, but we've been in there for just over a year now, and um, everyone sort of says to me, "How's it going?" It's, it's going well, but um, we sort of we don't really know what normal is yet, and hopefully we'll sort of get, get a sort of bit of a handle on that this year. You know, I remember um, when I early in two thousand odd, I think it might have been two thousand and three or four or something like that, when I probably first came across you, I was selling sausage casings up and down the central uh, up and down the north coast of new south wales all the way up to i think my my area is from north sydney to ballina uh and then west so <laughs> and I, I, so it was a pretty big area um and uh yeah I, I i remember going to your shop and i was just in um in awe of what i what i found in a in a country town like you know like the 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 value adding and the the window display that you had in in the old shop back then and like that's going back probably close to 17, 18 years ago, I suppose. But I'd never seen too many regional shops in particular that had an offer like that. So, so what what made you sort of take that on, like looking at all the value add and the different sort of things that you were doing? I guess um, we always struggled. Like regionally, we sort of struggled to get the margin that a lot of people that we see get uh, in city areas, I've got to be honest. Um, I often look at prices other guys are charging and think, oh, geez, you know, how, how can they get that, you know? Um, so for us, the value-adding side of things sort of came about as a desire to increase margin. Um, I've always had an interest. Initially, it started with gourmet snags uh, back in the day, you know, looking for different flavor combinations and things like that. And it sort of just morphed over into the value-adding stuff. But originally, when I was managing a business back in the mid-90s, a guy by the name of Barry McDonald, I don't know whether you ever knew Barry. Barry used to work for me. Oh, did he? He, he was a cat. Yeah, I had a shop in Artarman and um, I was looking for a casual butcher and old Barry popped his head in one day and um, it just went from there. He did a, I think he did a couple of years for me, I think, all up, but he, he was a great bloke. Hell of a character. Yeah, no. hell of a character. He was, um, so he rolled into, the, yeah, you literally walked into the, into, my, into the butcher shop I was managing about five o'clock one afternoon and went, yeah, hi, this is who I am. This is, this is what I do. I'll be down in the, um, I think he said the kitchen the services club here this afternoon and I'm going to show you how to cut 60% gross profit out of lamb. Well, that just made me go, well, I'm there, you know. Um, he invited every butcher in town. There's only a couple of us that turned up. But that was the start of, of, of a pretty long association with Barry. Um, used to ring him up quite a bit. When I was in Sydney, he'd sort of he'd, um, he'd pick me up and take me around and show me a few shops. And, and, um, and then when I moved to Queensland, he actually came up for a week and, Worked with my guys and and you know, just sort of helped to upskill everybody. He, he was, um, yeah, he was a great help. No, he he certainly knew a lot. I I think I had him probably early nineties would have been when he was working for me. And yeah, he always brought something different to the table. That's for sure. Like you said, he was a bit of a character. He was loud and proud, and he, he you know he he loved to get loved all the intricacy because he he'd stand there like. Um, when he was explaining something and the hands would be going and, and the fingers would be wiggling around. He was very animated when, with, with the way he explained things. Oh, he was. He was an old school showman. I remember when he was helping us for that week up in Queensland, you know, he had no hesitation to sort of put himself out behind the counter and you know, talk to whoever was there. And, and um, he was probably a lesson to a lot of the younger guys about well, what the trade looked like you know, 20, 30 years beforehand and how it, how it sort of functioned because um, – he definitely, um, he wasn't backward in coming forward when it came to, um, you know, being proud about what he, what, he, what he knew and what he could do. Yeah, he certainly was. Yeah, yeah he, he passed away a few years ago now, but a uh, big loss for the industry, that's for sure. Yeah, it wasn't good. So um, you're a farmer. 
to you've you, you grow your own cattle or you have been for for a number of years so you, you were i think in one of our uh, discussions we had you you were putting some cattle through your through your shop in the early days yeah so i've sort of um I've really taken an opportunistic sort of approach to it when that when the numbers have made sense we've really we've gone quite heavy on that um and it's been good for us the drought of 17 18 19 was was horrific i've got to be honest it wasn't fun at all um and at about that same time i'd sort of made a um an arrangement with um, a local dairy up here to take their um, wagyu and limbers and cross um, dairy cross calves. What this particular dairy was doing was they were joining their top ten percent of their herd, um, their best cows to um, to Frisians and to other to more dairy bulls. But the rest of the herd, they didn't really care what they um, were joined to as long as they had a calf because then they'd lactate for another another year and they'd continue to milk. So the arrangement was that I would I would take you know a lot of these calves and so we sort of got into a program. We read sort of in the space of a couple of years, nearly, nearly four or 500 calves, um, all hand-read, individual pens. It was a mammoth job, but I was doing that before and after work with the help of my, my, my boys. Um, but um, the drought just eventually just ran out of the top of us. So we had to sort of pull up on that. And um, the dairy farm has now since been sold. I'm not doing that program anymore. So that was... Um, it was just starting to come to fruition. It was really, really profitable. It was just starting to work really well for us. And um, we just got to the point where we just couldn't fund um, fund the feed bill for all, all the livestock for the drought because we literally, it was just, um, yeah, our farm looked like the moon. You know, it wasn't fun. But, you know, it was, um, we just put that one down to experience. We will go again. We still have all the infrastructure for it and the farm's still sitting here. It's um, running a few cattle at the moment. But, um, it gave us great consistency. It gave us really good control. Um, it allowed us to tell a story about our product um, to the consumer, um, which essentially was was a, a waste product or a byproduct of another industry, which is an unwanted calf. Um, and we were valuating it and um, and getting some good results with it. You know, we we're feeding them right up um, here at home. Um, and uh, we were just starting to put some really nice beef through. It was a bit disappointing, but. Um, the farm's still there. Uh, we'll probably look um, to sort of step back into that later on this year and, and, and get that going. But just because we're in a new store, I've just taken this first 12 months and just wanted to focus on that wholly and solely and not have my attention sort of divided, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to bite off too much than you can chew. So the the, the meat that uh, you were getting off that type of cattle with, with the wag you cross, would it, how, how was it like obviously reasonably good quality yeah it was so it was um typical wagyu like a beautifully fine textured a nice flex through it we were we were feeding a ration which was um without going into too much detail and confusing everybody but we're actually growing grass in a hydroponic um shed uh so it was a predominantly grass-fed ration so we're getting good flavor out of our beef uh it was probably a marble score sort of three to four which out of a grass-fed product was really good we're happy with that it was eating really well. We were really happy with it. It had been an idea in my mind for a while and it was sort of just starting to sort of click together. You know, we had, had to fine-tune our feed ration a few times but we just started to get it get it to the point where it was really starting to work, getting really good feedback um, from our customers. And we're just getting the consistency that we're sort of struggling to get, you know, through our normal supply. There's a bloke I met a few years ago down in uh, Adelong in um – in New South Wales, sort of southern New South Wales, who crosses his Angus herd with the Frisian cattle, Frisian dairy cows, 
and he he reckons it's some of the best that like the, the dairy cow brings a really nice bit of marbling to to the meat uh and, a, and a, an excellent flavor and he gets very good yield out of it too yeah it's it's funny a lot of people look at a dairy cow and just think there's no meat on that and they'll be right but the, the reason for that is because of the way they're fed they're fed on a high protein ration which protein is building blocks for lactation and muscle de- uh, and skeletal development they don't really you know like energy and carbs is what puts on meat and fat the dairy cow doesn't really get fed that but when they when they do it's quite surprising you know how they can actually come up you know the meat's really finely textured and marbles up nicely eats really really well I used to notice that all the rib bones were always really nice flat bones. The other thing I really liked about it too was like your navel end of your briskets and, and, and through the shoulder and that they didn't lay down the fat like the British bread cattle did. So your saleable meat yield was actually quite surprising how good it could be. That's that's an end of the – like the navel end is a, a part a lot of guys – a lot of people don't use. They normally end up throwing that into um, – in like obviously sausages or mints or whatever and uh but but uh, you know like for the export market they call it the karubi plate and uh they they use it as a thin slice and slow cook overseas so it's something that we've we've played around with a little bit to uh leaving the um the bark on the outside of it we've been able to roast it up like a pork belly and you can actually get that um that uh that red bark to to crisp up a little bit a little bit like uh like pork crackling yeah so it's a, it's a it's a great little piece, and we 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 chopped it into pieces, and we just sort of fried, we, we were able to get the crackle, but then we actually put it all in a pan and sort of ended up with burnt ends and that. So it was a, a great piece of meat to play with, just to add value with it, especially from a food service point of view. So you know, if if butchers are out there and and that obviously they, if they're buying carcasses and they're using the whole brisket and the, the navel ends going into into sausages or mints, like look at doing something different with it and putting it out there doing a bit of research um there's a little bit online uh if they want to contact us we we've got a we've got a method there that uh that that actually works for it so you know i I think that that's it's such an underrated piece of meat like a lot of the other secondary cuts of beef i think um with the price of beef doug like where it's sort of sitting at the moment especially and i don't think it's going to you know it may come back you know a little bit but it's definitely not going to harm in price that's for sure so i think moving forward We've, we've got to look, if it, especially for those guys that are breaking beef still and, and taking that approach, you've got to look at every part of the carcass and how you can value out as much as you can out of it. Yep, you've got to. You, you certainly have. So so cost-wise for you to do that, that, that would have brought you, obviously, cost of goods way down by utilising your own stock. Yeah, what, what we decided to do is we still booked the beef in at the market price. So essentially we had a business being the farm on one side that was sort of profitable and then we had the shop essentially that you know we're still responsible for, for you know cutting its margin as, as if we we're buying that beef in and that was just how we decided to do it but overall yeah it had a dramatic effect to put it into perspective like there was roughly a thousand dollars profit in each animal before it got to the shop so if you were doing four or five bodies a week it was sort of four or five grand a week that was come off your come off your cost of goods every week so it was a, you know, on top of what you would all you know you should have already been making it was a it was a good thing yeah Maybe a um, little bit further down the track, once you get your, yourself settled there in the new shop, some of these butchers listening in probably might give you a bit of a tingle and say, "Hey, Scott, uh, what's happening with the cattle sort of side of it?" <laughs> it's one of those things that I, I sort of just—it it nearly burnt me out, to be honest. Like, if you could picture 150, 200 potty calves that need to be fed every morning and then fed every afternoon, and then the butcher shop to run in between, it was, um, it was a lot of work. <laughs> 
Yeah, a very long day, mate. So what else is happening out there, mate? What are you What are you seeing out there in in the regional areas? As um, trades trades been relatively good throughout the Christmas period and and running into summer. Yeah, it has been a bit of a surprise actually. And we had that sort of where the supermarkets sort of had that meat shortage there through January. We benefited from that. Our sales jumped about thirty percent. At the same time, a few of the wholesale trade sort of just slowed right up. You know, we had that a little bit of a wave where the Omicron sort of did its thing. But um, I think overall, it's hard to identify what what the business is going to look like in its current situation. We just haven't had that twelve months yet of uninterrupted trade. Um, and slowly building all the time, we, we've just made a real conscious effort um, just to focus on just doing particular things really, really well. It's really easily distracted so that you end up doing trying to you know be all things, especially in a regional area where you perhaps you know the area that you're drawing on isn't big enough to allow you to sort of just fill one section of the market. It's often regional butchers find themselves you know, trying to do the wholesale, trying to do this, trying to do that. And trying to do a good retail job, then trying to do, you know do the value add job, and I think sometimes you never quite do any of it really as good as you'd like. So we've sort of made the decision that we, we not that we're stepping away from the wholesale stuff, but we're we're definitely not chasing it anymore. We're just going to try and focus on that customer over the counter, getting our money on the day, not having to chase accounts. And I, I find too when when you're locked into wholesale supply, I've often felt that you're locked into to purchasing products purely just as a supplier to those guys, whereas with the retail thing, you get a little bit more flexibility. You can sort of chop and change in regards to, you know, you can move products off your display and put other ones in that you can actually make some money out of. Whereas with the wholesale stuff, you know, you're often locked into just supplying product because that's what they always want and, you know, you end up carrying the burden of market fluctuations because they want you to sort of be consistent on your pricing and it's 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 probably all right if, if you're geared, for that, geared that way. But, yeah, I'm not sort of sure that, um, that we really are and I think moving forward we'll make that, make that over-the-counter customer and perhaps look at sort of building our online presence uh, a priority. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about there uh, when it comes to wholesale. Like, you know, that you've got to be consistent in quality and price with that, but your bread and butter's on the other side of the counter. Um, you know, the, the, that that's... That's that is where where you can make some good money out of the, the your day to day customers. So the you know as as we said the wholesalers they they're very price driven. Or sorry, your wholesale wholesale customers are very price driven, and they need to know why you have to put your prices up all the time. You've 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 obviously seen it as well. Like you, you just get build a good relationship with it, with a particular business, and things are going along well, and to a point you've almost educated the chef to you know what you should be using and, and you know you're, you they're happy you're making money as well and then a new chef comes in or a new owner comes along and, and the whole relationship then has is sort of thrown away and you know you do that enough times and you sort of get to the point you just go you know i need to focus on on where the profit is and the profit's definitely over the counter oh, definitely definitely in your sausages value add just even your, your your everyday traditional cuts you know that that's where it is it's um it's it's there's no good sort of uh chasing your tail You've got to take it while it's there. Get get the customers in. Hundred percent. I haven't been to Armadale for a few years now, uh, so you've got obviously got your general your, your Coles, Woolies, you got Aldis up there as well. So so there's has that sort of that the retail side of it, the chains that that's that's grown up there or. Um. So we've got we've had Coles and Woolies forever and a day, and we got Aldi about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. We've sort of noticed that the supermarkets are doing their job better all the time as well. So if we're not evolving, eventually we get overtaken. Um, it's really easy just to con- continue to do what you always know but I, I, I find as much as I'm not a massive fan of social media and a, a, 
annoys me um, a lot of the time. I do enjoy the aspect of that, um, you, know, you know, we can follow butchers on the other side of the world or, or wherever they might be and you're almost getting their business every day. Mm. And you can see what's, you know, what they're doing and you can tweak an idea for, to suit your own market or you can take something that, that they've done and, and plagiarise it as, you know, as much as you like, really. I mean, your local customer in your local area is not going to know that you know, there's a butcher in, in uh, England that did this particular product a week ago and now you know, you've created your own reincarnation of it. Um, so I really do enjoy that aspect of it and, and I've got to be honest, um, you know, I'm, gu- I'm guilty of you know, looking at what other guys are doing and, and putting our own twist on it and you know, seeing whether we can get some traction with it as well. They wouldn't put it out there if they weren't proud of it and if, uh, you know, and if they think that nobody's going to copy off them, well, you know, they're, they're silly really because that's what I think that's why most guys put it out there is to show other butchers that, hey, this is what you can do with this. This is what I'm doing. Um, but you're right, mate. Social, I, I, I hate it. I, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of it. I try not to use it too much. I know I've got an Instagram account and I've got a, a Facebook page and I look at it every now and again and I, and I go, God, I haven't posted anything for like, you know, since before Christmas yeah. or something like that, you know, but <laughs> it's, I'm really regular. Um, but I do like looking, like I'll open it up of a night if I'm not interested in what's on the telly and I'll start looking at the Instagram account. I think that you get a little bit of a feel of what some of the guys are doing out there and from all over the world you know you've got blokes there doing stuff and like there, there's a guy in sydney called brett laws or lawsy i can't remember what he goes by yeah i follow lawsy he's fantastic isn't he what like some of the stuff he does is just incredible yeah probably not realistic but he is a talented guy and he, he obviously really enjoys what he does uh, very passionate butcher, I think. I haven't spoken to him. I actually know a guy who who's his manager uh, of the, sh- the the shop chain that he works for. But um, yeah, very talented guy, and you'd l- you'd love to have him in your butcher shop. But uh, you know, oh mate, he'd get a job in anybody's team. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and that that passion shows, doesn't it, in the way that he does it, and he's so proud to get out there. I think he's got like twenty odd thousand followers on Instagram or something, which is just is insane. That it's insane. Yeah. I looked at it a few weeks back and I thought, crikey, you know, but, but then again, you've got other guys on the other side of the planet. Like you've got, um, there's a guy called George, something from the, I think that's, uh, he's at Borough Markets, uh, in, in right. the UK. In London, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah and, and he, he does the same sort of stuff. His is very traditional butchery there, I think, but, um, but he's very proud to show what he does. And it also, you know, it, it's not just these guys, but there's a lot of guys out there that I, that I see, and they're they're advertising um, uh, what they what they've got for sale in the in their shops, and there's some guys getting up there, and they're they're having a good crack, and they're really enjoying what they're doing. I think too, like um, the, the beauty of sort of social media as opposed to you know the traditional print and radio and that sort of thing, and 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 whatnot is. You do, you do get an opportunity. If you can engage your customer and get them onto your channel, so to speak, you can speak to them every day, um, whether they're in your store or, or not. And I think a lot of us sort of get a bit overwhelmed by that. <laughs> I, I don't know that you really have to make it that complicated. I think um, just a quick conversation, you know, just show what you're doing, you know. We've been really given a, a sort of helping hand over the last sort of 10 or 20 years with, with you know, there's a cooking show on every channel at some point in the day. To some respects, you know, we can showcase ourselves the same. And if, it, if you can't sort of engage your customer that way when they're not in your store, 
you know, you've only got a, a brief window when they are in your store. So I sort of look at it as like there's a massive opportunity there. I know I don't do it that well all the time. We, we're a bit hit and miss. We, we, we pick it up and we, we go well with it for a period of time and then we sort of get busy doing other things and you realise that you, you haven't been on the program. But I think it's a, done done right. It's a great tool. But I saw um, I saw the negative side of it the other day. I think it was Joel from the Three J's Butcher in Trialgan the other day. You know, had some vegans trolling his, his social media, you know. So, I mean, but that aside, it's all pretty good. Yeah, that, that's a risk you take. And, you know, they, they eventually go away. You know, you don't give them any oxygen and they just sort of go away. So I think that's the best way you can treat them. Just don't, just don't entertain them pretty much. I agree. I, I do remember your, your sister, Christine, is it? She used to do a lot of your social stuff for you. Yeah, I mean, she was responsible. I think originally for starting the Facebook page, and she just, typical Christine, she just started it, didn't even tell me. <laughs> Got it up and running. <laughs> she did a great job. Like, you know, you could always see what was going on in the shop. She got right behind um, campaigns and, and entered a lot, and she, she was very proud to show what you guys were doing in the shop. So, you know, you, you think think about it. What What's the value of, say, there's companies out there that do this for you. What what is the value for them to to structure a, some posts for you throughout it for a month even, so you don't have to touch it. You just tell them what you want. Uh, they obviously they'll send you through imagery or, or 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 some information. You just sort of basically agree to what you want, and then they take it from there. That that would be quite valuable for for any butcher these days. I think um, especially those guys that don't naturally feel confident to sort of do it or, or aren't interested in it or don't have somebody within their business that has those skills I, I think it'd definitely be worth looking at I know I've considered it at different times I know some guys have some younger people within their business that are quite you know savvy on the whole social media thing I know for myself we've had the best success and been when I've actually sat down and I'll map out in the next 60 days do a basic spreadsheet with the dates and I'll put in what we're going to do virtually every day mm. And um, if I offload that to the wife, it gets done. If I leave it to, to myself, it doesn't. <laughs> Typical. You got to give it to somebody else to do. I think you, you know that you've got enough to do. You've got enough on your plate, so it, it just just that that one less job you have to worry about. Absolutely. I think at times we just get overwhelmed by having to do something extra that we just don't do anything at all, and that doesn't mm-hmm. work either. You're doing any online sort of sales, or is it all basically get through the shop? It's all over the shop front. We, we actually have a website that's. Um, it's been built. We're just populating it at the moment, so that's sort of that's the next ninety days. We want to get that one sort of locked away and get sort of get it get it up and going because we are we are behind in that respect. Locally, I sort of felt that everyone knew where we were and that we had the presence in the profile. But what I have discovered, especially since we've relocated, is we had a lot of shoppers that still shop at Coles that don't come over to the centre that we're in anymore. And after speaking to them, they quite happily come online with us in a subscription-based model, which is what we're sort of looking at launching. So they could choose how much they want to spend. They can build their own pack and we can deliver that to whatever time frame they want, whether it's every two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it needs to be. So that's sort of the basic framework of what we're trying to design at the moment. Okay, that's an interesting one. All the business coaches that I've spoken to always talk about the um, the power of a subscription-based business model. And after looking into it, I, I think that's the way we'll sort of try. Once you've got people locked in and sort of on a bit of a program, they're far more inclined just to keep going with it than if they have to keep remembering to actually keep ordering. You look at the, the likes of U Foods and Marley Spoon and all those, all those sort of companies there, like, you know, they would ha- have a subscription-based clientele as well where they'll get a week-to-week 
delivery, but it'll vary month to month sort of thing. So, you know, that those those businesses are just growing huge and they're taking a big slice out of butcher shops. Um, so it, it's probably, it's a great idea to sort of look at doing something different like that and it'll be interesting to see how it actually performs for you. Yeah, hopefully it'll go all right. I need to sort of do a little bit of research in respect to um, cold freight and how we can transport goods around and different things and packaging, which is sort of next on the on the to-do list, but that's where we're sort of heading, yeah. Yeah, we spoke with uh, Grant Hilliard from Feather and Bone last uh, a fortnight ago, and he's he's just, he's very all about sustainability, the environment, and, he's, and provenance is, is everything to him about the product that they sell there. And um, they're using a, a recycled cardboard box with a woolen insert. Yeah, so it's an insulated wool liner. I, I listened to that podcast, and... There was um, a mob out of New Zealand that make a product called Woolcool, and that was what I was looking to use as well. But last I checked, we couldn't get it in Australia. But um, I'll have to check with Grant and see what who he's using because I, I was unable to find that sort of product. Yeah, yeah. no, drop him a line. I'm sure he'd like to share that with you. But uh, great, great concept, good idea, and you know, it's environmentally friendly, which ticks the box for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So... um. What's the future for Armadale, mate? You, you know, twenty-four months in the in the new shop. What's happening next down the track? At the, at the moment, the next thing is is sort of get our online sort of business sort of up and tracking along. Um, that'll be our next sort of focus. And I think the biggest thing for me after that that I really want to make a focus on is sort of um, staff development. Often they're sort of pushed to sort of the, you know, the, <laughs> the back of the queue, so to speak. Sometimes you know because you've got anything else going on, but you know you touched on it there a minute ago. You know you got. To, find you know, other people to do other things in your business because often it just falls back on, on you and then it doesn't get done. And I think the answer to that is by empowering my staff and, and tr- keep continuing to train them up, you know. That's that's where our priority will probably sort of shift in the next sort of six to 12 months. Dan McCarthy down there in Geelong, we spoke to him a few months ago and, and he does that very well. He does that extremely well. He he, he offloads a lot of work onto his onto his staff and they do a fantastic job. They t- You know, just gives them a little bit little bit of something different to do throughout the day too rather than you know whether the, the mundane things that we do day to day that just sort of bright you know just get, breaks up the monotony of it all yeah dan's a good operator he's very good at sort of explaining what he needs what he expects and i think it, it gives his staff a little bit of their own job own responsibility that's unique to them as well so it's, it's a good lesson to learn i think for a lot of butchers you end up aging very quickly if you're doing everything yourself so spreading the love Getting other people to do some of this work just take makes life so much better, and you start to enjoy doing what you like doing. You know, I think that that's a big thing. A hundred percent. I mean, we've all we've all different times just felt like, you know, we're getting pulled every direction, and 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 you know, it's probably the one thing that can take your passion away from from the trade if you're not careful. I think if you, if you don't protect yourself in that respect, you just end up hating it. It becomes a chore. Oh, definitely, definitely. All right, mate. Well, anything else that you want to talk about? Actually, Doug. From a conversation we had the other day, I think uh, a few of the guys out there might be interested to know um, what we're sort of doing with um, some of the state government incentives out there for new trainees. We've sort of signed a few of our guys up on a couple of different uh, trainees, Cert 2s and that sort of thing. There's a $7,000 per quarter per apprentice. So that sort of that sort of money sort of adds up after a period of time. And at the moment, you know, with the way things have been, it was... Um, it was sort of worthwhile looking at and taking up that opportunity. Oh, definitely, mate. Like that—that's a—that's a great incentive to put, which is well, to, to bring apprentices into the trade and lessening the load a little bit. So you know, we're all looking. Everybody's looking for tradesmen these days. It'd be great to see see more butchers do their part in bringing in more apprentices 
especially with those sort of incentives available. Yeah, and I think if you've got if you've got say you've got butchers already that have, that have done their trade, I think there's a possibility there that if you wanted to do a um, maybe a retail management cert two or a small goods cert two. Um, you can still take advantage of it that way as well. Yeah, upskilling is a great idea, especially with the business management side of it in particular because a lot of guys out there probably love to buy their own butcher shop but um, do do sort of wonder, can I do it? Will I be able to do it? But just getting that, that, that little bit more knowledge behind them uh, and uh, getting that certification, I think, would give them a lot more confidence that they can succeed. Oh, absolutely. And I think even from the aspect of um, even if they don't go to, on to buy their own shop, it opens their eyes perhaps a little bit to to what's going on within the business that they're working in. I mean, a lot of the time they'd see the money coming in, but they don't really have an understanding of you know, how many different ways it's got to go and you know, how thin it gets spread before there's any left over. Yeah, you know? no, too right, too right. Awesome, mate. Well... Thank you very much for the chat tonight. It's great to great to catch up again. Finally, it was probably been a couple of years since I've, I've, we last caught you up on the Gold Coast. I think it was so um, good to see you again, mate. And one uh, one of these days, I'll get back out there to Armadale and love to have a look at the new shop. Oh, absolutely, we'd love to see you up here. And if anybody's listening and and the you know up in the beautiful New England, more than welcome to throw their head in the door and say good day. Yeah, that's good stuff, mate. I'm sure they'll appreciate it and you'll probably get a few butchers knocking on your door as they're travelling around on their holidays with their caravans like everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Good on you, Scott. All the best, mate. Take care of yourself. Cheers, Doug. Thanks, mate. Welcome, Ripley. Hi, Doug. Over the past few months, we've seen a lot of of butchers have had a lot of issues with supply. Uh, for, for obvious reasons, being the labour shortages out there, it's not, it's not so much about the actual supply of beef and lamb that's, that's available, but it's more about the labour shortage that uh, a lot of the processes have had over the, the Christmas period and leading into early this year. So uh, how are we looking? What's, what are we expecting to see for the next same month or so? Yeah, Doug, it's a really good point you make, and I think it's a, it's a good place to start. Um, certainly in agreement that, you know, the Omicron wave has had created some challenges across the beef and lamb supply chain. Um, January was a tough month, but we've seen the first week of February really improve in regards to supply, lifting um, by 25,000 head week on week for uh, cattle numbers, and sheep rose to numbers just under uh, 15,000 head below what 2020 volumes were. So they're at 370,000 head for uh, the week. And those two lifts in in supply volumes for both sheep and lambs was really positive to see and those numbers to to us are indicative that the that we're you know coming out of the omicron wave in regards to the challenges around you know processing volumes and the impact that's obviously you know labor's having on that processing capacity yeah right that's that's interesting that that's good to hear um obviously we knew it was going to come to some sort of an end eventually Mm. and things will start to get better And, and also um with a lot of the visas or a lot sorry a lot of the borders opening up yeah and a lot of the visa holders will be coming in which will then help to uh step up the labor component in in amongst the processing sector because i know they lost a heap over mm. the last few years and um uh the, the local and also the local population around a lot of the regional areas where the processes are that they've had trouble getting those guys to or those people coming mm. to work as well yeah so um yeah that'll, that'll be a nice little at least they have something to do when they get to work. Yeah, definitely. I think um, 
there, there would have been some some positive signs or some positive you know reactions to that response about about the February twenty first uh, reopening date you know to to double vaccinated tourists and obviously working holiday visa makers which make up such an integral part of you know the agricultural supply chain right from you know the farm gate and exactly as you say through to processing and and delivering that product to to market. I, I remember Pat Hutchinson from AMIC talking. He's the CEO of uh, of AMIC. And uh, he was talking late last year, and he mentioned like, that there were thousands, hmm. thousands of positions available through the processing sector. Uh, so it, it must be pretty hard, or well, it has been a very tough time for those guys just to keep their their, their doors open and keep the the cattle and the sheep flowing through the through the uh, through the business. Yeah, and I I, I definitely agree. I, I think uh, we've we've communicated or, or we've had conversations with industry regarding that challenge. You know, and um, and and we've seen the impacts of that. And if industries communicated to us that if these labour processing issues continue, it will have 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 a have a detrimental effect on on slaughter volumes of both sheep and lamb moving forwards. And and we've recognised as the market information team that if this labour issue continues to become prominent, we might have to revise our numbers. But I think the boost of of seeing. Certainly, this this border reopening and and the potential for those you know working holiday visa makers to come back um, will certainly improve that situation and it's and it's sort of stepped back I suppose you'd say as an issue but to to your point rounding it back to what Pat Hutchinson said it's definitely been something that's that's been a problem within the agricultural workforce of red meat for a long time um, it's something that's that's been around even preceding the pandemic has it's been an issue but um you know looking on the positive side the borders are reopening you know people have got more confidence to move around in time we we hopefully um you know we'll see that issue improve so numbers wise i suppose uh for the domestic market what's the better areas are all all the states you know putting through reasonable numbers or is it sort of more more restricted to the the eastern states or the western states going okay yeah so wa um we'll, we'll discuss wa first it it's slaughter volumes in both you know sheep and lambs um and cattle have been outperforming what historically they would have been so that omicron wave or, or the coronavirus hasn't you know as adversely affected the western australian processing sector and they're actually doing quite well currently and they're still performing with some some strong volumes on the back of an improved lamb crop last year or a lamb cohort i should say which is supply uh following a wet winter they had but if you look to the eastern states um the the latest numbers for last week's volumes all states are basically performing uh where they should be victoria is still below uh, traditionally what we'd expect to see but New South Wales and Queensland are uh, you know they're certainly making up the majority as they always do uh, New South Wales and Queensland account for 68% of the total cattle slaughter volumes um, per year which equates to around five and a half million head per annum based off that 10-year average so those numbers are quite strong and if we look at the lambs Again, it's a little bit of a similar situation where Western Australia, you know, has has been doing well. Um, its numbers are, are historically quite strong, and Victoria's really picked up uh, in 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 the last, you know, I would say, in the last week. Like their numbers uh, last week were 132,000 slaughtered per week, and now we've seen Victoria up to 170,000. 
increase. Yeah. Time, so they've certainly in the in the lamb space, they're they're really performing well, and New South Wales in a similar situation. So we know products being able, firstly, to get to the processing sector, and we know now in in that increase, particularly Victoria, which accounts for around fifty percent of the uh, national lamb slaughter processing volumes per year, we know that Victoria is picking up those numbers. So there's there's certainly supply getting there and, and getting it through the processing sector, you know, into the retail um, space is, is is strong at the minute. And it's, it's certainly improving from certainly over the last month. That's, that's great news. So um, I suppose brands uh, play a big difference too. Like a lot of guys have their favorite brands out there and uh, the uh, Tassie, as some of the you know some mm. of the more popular brands yeah. out yeah. there, uh, they're, they're still going quite strong down there. Yeah, yeah, and Tasmania, um, for example, as well. I'll just touch on the cattle first. Similar situation. They've they've been good, but um, in recent weeks, certainly last week, we saw those numbers soften. Uh, now I know Tasmania has been uh, that their numbers in regards to cattle volumes through the yardings have been. I'm not going to say constricted, but they've they've come down, they've softened in in regards to supply. So that has had an impact in in their overall um, volumes, but they have had a wetter summer than what they traditionally would experience. And in regards to the rebuild concept, which you know we've discussed quite prominently, that would be playing a part in 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 how that uh, cattle slaughter volumes are going in Tassie. But if I look at the lambs. At the minute, um, they're actually performing quite well, um, but they've also experienced that, that they started the year. God, they started the year sort of fifteen hundred head stronger than twenty twenty, and that was during a, 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 one of the drier periods for for that state. But those numbers have certainly softened. Um, now back to sort of around what what you would expect traditionally on a week on week volume basis. So they haven't they're still performing relative to what 2020 and 2021 volumes were. So that's still you know still strong. So what are we looking at? I suppose uh, price wise, we're we looking at some sort of uh, easing of prices, I suppose maybe, or are we still looking at a at a, at a climbing ecky and wiki? Yeah. So. The latest in regards to to that situation, Doug, would be uh, we're expecting the national cattle herd to grow by uh, 4% or 1.1 million head in 2022. And that will be driven by New South Wales and Victoria in regards to the increase in supply. And that herd increase or herd expansion, you'll say, will um, translate into increased slaughter volume. So we're expecting an extra or an increase of 700,000 head or 11% on slaughter volumes from 2020, which we expect to hit the market uh, in mid to in mid 2022 to the second half of 2022, uh, and that's in relation to some production fundamentals. But obviously, we know, and and the lambs are the best example of it in relation to that spring flush. Increased supply always puts pressure, downward pressure, on the market. Um, you know, we know that export fundamentals uh, and, and the situation relating to Australian red meat demand globally will still play its part in, in the way that the markets move in 2022 for cattle. But um, we, know that, we know that increased supply places pressure on the market and uh, the industry analysts, so which was Rabobank, Mercado, 
ABEZ, Thomas Elder Markets uh, and Auctions Plus and NAB forecast the Eki for the 30th of June at 998 cents a kilo carcass weight, which would be 11% decline on what it is now. The MLA does not forecast uh, price, but those six industry analysts do, and that was what they expected the, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator to be by 30 June 2022. So, um, the, I suppose a lot of people, we're, we're, we're totally aware about how, uh, how much meat we export. Hmm. Um, the interesting part is China. Do you, do you have any information on that at hand uh, that, that you can sort of disclose whether whether you know are they going is that meat going to stay on the domestic market or is it going to be all these um, processes going to be looking sort of for other opportunities out there in the export? I suppose to to start, Doug, uh, Australia's export market is quite diversified. So in the drought year of 2019, 20% of our beef exports went to China. Uh, that's now declined in 2021 to 17%, but China is not, um, we're not, we don't have that really high concentration to, to the Chinese markets, such as Argentina, for example, it's over 75% of their product. They're a massive beef exporter uh, as well, you know, they're, they're huge. 75% plus of their product is concentrated at China, where Australia has that diversification and other market opportunities have been, um, you know, or sort of have eventuated. South Korea, for example, last year jumped into second spot of our um, second largest beef exporter, rising by 3% or around 4,500 tonnes. Whilst, you know, smaller markets and emerging markets such as uh, Vietnam and the Philippines, the Philippines grew by 26% or 5,000 tonnes last year. And Vietnam, at the expense of the live export industry, grew by 18%. So those improvements or increases in, in product, um, you know, really demonstrate how Australia's export markets are quite diversified and there are other emerging countries that have, you know, purchased that product. But sort of back to your question in regards to where that product will go from a processing capacity, it's not something that um, is, you know, is disclosed or openly shared. But looking at the figures in in relation to the exports, they're sort of discussing or, or pointing to to how product has moved in relation to you know China and where where else we've been able to send it. Who's who's interested? Well, that's that's um that's good. Um, so we can we can look at the possibility of having uh, good supply for yep. the next couple of months. Yep. For both beef and lamb. Yeah. And uh, plenty of plenty of stock out there for the butchers to put on the shelves. Yeah, definitely, Doug. And I think I didn't touch on lamb, but we're expecting lamb numbers this year in regards to slaughter to increase again to twenty one point six million head, which is an increase of one point three. So that we're expecting a larger lamb cohort again in twenty twenty two, and an improvement in supply over the next couple of months due to some processing challenges which we've discussed and the feed producers have available, but. Lands will come to a weight where they need to be turned off. That's, you know, like, like any production system. So the increase in, in supply will be plentiful this year for lambs and we're, we're seeing that really um, positive or favourable improvement in regarding to beef as well as that herd rebuild matures and, and, you know, strengthens on the back of the strong seasonal conditions farmers have had. So if the butchers want to uh, get a little bit more information, we have this available on our uh, 
mla.com.au website under the markets side of it. So there's all this all this information is freely available for anybody who wants to have a look at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely freely available. Um, you know, available to anyone for anyone to use at any time. And yeah, it does go into some of that. You know, that really intricate detail around what what the supply is doing, what that means, and and you know our cattle projections and sheep projections, which are released. Uh, four and three times a year respectively speak to those bigger sort of macro level things but all of this information that I've discussed today with you is available to everyone on the website under the market reports page of the MLA. Good on you Rip, thanks mate. Cool, thanks mate. Well that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the chat with Scott. If you've missed any of our earlier podcasts simply hit the subscribe button and you can keep up to date with all our other episodes. If you have any inquiries or just want to know a little bit more about the Australian Butchers Guild, please drop me an email at butchers at mla.com.au. Thanks for supporting our Butchers Guild podcast and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. Cheers. You've been listening to the Australian Butchers Guild podcast, produced by The Sound Business.